the Bejo's acquisition, huge limelight on the company. The company wasn't ready for that kind of limelight because it was really like a, it was true, like it was 18 months old, a huge like amount of limelight and like, you know, a lot of like uh, holes in the, in the systems and processes, right? I think it just kind of came in droves and I, I was like just correcting one by one, one by one, like looking at everything and saying, okay, fix this system, fix that system, fix that system. So I think, uh, you know, like I think the the thing was, you know, I, I would say criticism uh, was looked at to figure out how to make systems better. And second, I think at, during all of this time, I just kept saying, look, let's keep making the curriculum and the teacher quality better and better and better daily. That's the product that we have, right? Uh, let's like so i had always had a separate team working on learning experience and teacher quality and let's keep making that better and better so i said okay let's even as we are fixing holes and plugging i don't want the whole company to become about plugging holes we should keep getting better at the same time so i kind of kept the uh, like the like i restructured very quickly right and restructured the company to focus on learning experience and delivery uh, with uh, as much intent as growth and- This is Siddharth Alwalia. Welcome to the 100x Entrepreneur Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Prime Venture Partners, an early stage VC fund led by Amit Somani, Shripati Acharya and Sanjay Swami. Prime is often the first institutional investor in category creating tech startups in fintech, SaaS, healthcare and education such as Mygate, Neo and Reco. To know more about Prime, visit primevp.in. Today, I have with me Karan Bajaj, founder of White Hat Junior. Karan, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure, Siddharth. Great to be here. Karan, before we start on the journey of White Hat Junior, I would like to know about, you know, how you grew up, your family and the background and the cities you grew up in. Um, My father was in the army. So uh, obviously, we moved around quite a lot. So I changed like about 15, 18 schools in my 12 years of schooling. And uh, uh, much of my, I mean, I've like, I was living uh, in Assam to Ladakh, um, Jabalpur, or or, or Delhi, uh, almost all parts of uh, like Northeast, West, South, I covered during my schooling period. So essentially, that's how I grew up. And I think that um, has been a very enduring influence in my life because um, even after I started my career, I moved around a lot myself, you know, I think probably part of it was the restlessness that always was part of the childhood of, so I also chose a very similar path unconsciously, you know, I kept changing uh, locations, jobs, careers, vocations, you know, so I think that's probably influenced a lot of things. And uh, uh, t- tell us about, you know, your journey as a professional before starting uh, White Hat, your education and how it shaped your career. Um, I had, I would say, Two parts, uh, and I spent almost like a decade on each uh, in my own way. Uh, part of it was my professional path. Uh, so I went to uh, IIM and after IIM, I joined Procter & Gamble. After Procter & Gamble, I went to Boston Consulting Group. Uh, then, uh, uh, then you know, I lived uh, half of it in India, half of it outside India and worked basically in consumer packaged uh, uh, CPG companies, uh, PNG, then Kraft, before I became the CEO of Discovery in India, Discovery Network in India. And parallelly, I was saying uh, the other part of my life, which was going very active in parallel was my writing. And as a consequence, so I I wrote uh, three novels and, uh, you know, to progressively first in India, then outside India. And I took a lot of years off to actually focus on my writing. So uh, like just before I was the Discovery CEO, for example, I'd taken two years off full time and I was living in New York and, uh, you know, trying to write my novel and get it published. 
then um, yeah and then also prior to that i taken multiple sabbaticals uh, to travel to write to do yoga and meditation so th- so i think that there were two parallel paths that were happening in my life uh, my professional career was go- ongoing but then i taken a lot of time in the middle, almost 4 5 years to really perfect my uh, like writing and my other parts of my life sukran when was the first time that you uh, started taking off breaks in your professional career the first time was um i i st- from business school in 2002 to 2008 i was with png procter and gamble and i didn't take any breaks i left procter and gamble to travel and uh, that's the first time i took a break i traveled for a year in 2008 and i uh, lived in south america for four months and uh, eastern europe for four months and mongolia for four months so that was the first time i really decided to backpack and travel and and what was uh, that desire that made you start writing and then take it seriously um the first time it was like uh, not as much a desire for writing as much as it became a natural consequence of living what i thought was a very interesting adventure and experience that i thought that many people should do right so for example uh, like uh, i i felt like uh, this idea that you could leave your job and travel for a year uh, like you know for somebody who has uh, like you know a typical average person doesn't come to your mind and i was as like you know i also had the same path as everybody else so like i didn't have any family money or anything like that so but i found that that experience was incredibly rich and really transformed me right made me uh, think of the world as very boundaryless i was traveling in uh, like in backpacking in brazil and that time in india like you know not too many indians were traveling there and Uh, they hadn't met indians and, and like uh, you know i couldn't speak the language i couldn't speak portuguese at all but i really found a very boundaryless uh, kind of world emerge for me because of the travels so i really like that the first novel that i wrote was a consequence of that and then after that did uh, reasonably well i wanted to write a second novel but at that point of time the surprising thing was that when i started to write a second novel i realized that uh, i had nothing to write about right so i think the great part about doing one creative activity well whether that's a startup or a novel is that it takes all of what you have as a human being i guess and you pour it into that creative activity and after that in a way the well runs dry so i think that was a very good catalyst because in order i realized that in order to create a career as a writer or even to write a second novel my life had to change very significantly if i was doing the uh, like really nothing much more to say in the world so i think that was a very good catalyst for uh like as a result of that i took a lot of chances with my life right i think after that i left for a year to learn yoga and meditation my third novel was a consequence of that year uh, so i think the the fact of doing the first creative activity which was writing the first novel pouring all of myself in it realizing that the well runs empty and then uh, in order to realizing that in order to have more of a creative career i would just have to fill my life with more experiences led my life down a path which should not which wouldn't have gone otherwise and uh, in 2008 when you took your first break uh, that was a risk right what was going in your in your mind that you could um, the first jump is very hard i think the first jump is very hard because uh, it was a particular i was also i was just turning 30 if i'm not wrong i was like 29 years old and uh, there was obviously all the family pressure to get married and settle down uh, buy a house and stuff and i was uh, you know around 30s when indians start to hit their like uh, some kind of stability in their career um and yeah it it felt very foolish right because i was like not settled in any way i did like you know didn't have a house didn't have like you know wasn't married that time so um you know i was like leaving everything and going and uh, without a 
like and I was also leaving a job so obviously the kind of the the public view or, or at least the public view of friends family etc was very negative um and and surprisingly enough i think the it, like a blessing in in retrospect but uh, actually when i came back from the sabbatical i really lived my worst case scenario because what happened is that i left for my sabbatical in january 2008 i came back in december 2008 and that time lehman brothers had crashed in the us yeah. and there was no jobs at all <laughs> and i really didn't have a job and i'd actually taken all my savings and spent it on traveling so when i came back i came back with uh, no money no job prospects and i was uh, really on my living on my sister's couch really in a, like you know like in a in the living room right so i kind of thankfully in a way well, later i realized i'd lived my worst case scenario and i realized that look two three months later i found a job in bcg then i had a so i felt like okay if the worst case has happened and like i'm okay like you know it, it's not great when it happens but like you know in in the pros of having taking a big leap for growth is much more than the cons of having to i think that liberated me so the subsequent loop uh, leaps became a bit easier the what was the second big the second big break was i took a year off to learn uh, yoga and meditation uh, in uh, in in india mostly i was i traveled from uh, with my with my girlfriend who became my wife at that point of time we traveled from europe to india by road and then uh, reached india after 2 3 months and then did yoga and meditation in an ashram uh, for a for for 5 6 months then i kind of wrote my novel in portugal so that was the second major break that i took um mm-hmm. then the third major break was obviously leaving my job to write full time for 2 years uh, and and each time i think the leap became easier because the first leap was so hard to take once you take the first leap i think the subsequent ones became a bit easier so the second one uh, was with a wife the third one was with a i had two kids that was like at every time the risk profile kept increasing because the third time uh, like when i left my job to write full time i had uh, you know i had two kids in yeah. the us that when you know like no no healthcare and stuff right uh, so yeah. i had to like, like really really dip from my savings in order to pursue a dream which is much more intangible like writing you know which you know that has a very low probability of success but as i said after the first leap became the subsequent leaps were a bit easier because i'd kind of come up with the pattern that it's really about if you grow a lot as a person um i think what happens is that life rewards growth right life rewards growth very significantly so uh, in in a sense that pattern had formed in my life that uh, growth uh, life will eventually reward growth and i grew a lot in the first sabbatical with traveling i grew a lot in the second sabbatical with yoga and meditation and i knew that each of these time i was taking a major leap for growth eventually life would reward me and i think that became a pattern that i've uh, really figured out because after i came back yoga meditation thing i realized that i was actually moving i moved up in my work very fast right i became like a c level executive very quickly because i was like i changed a lot as a person so i felt each time that if you chose growth i think life eventually will reward you right uh, it doesn't come in the immediate moment but it will reward you and i should just keep choosing growth all the time so each time i was like okay continue one more year doing the same thing or take a leap for a dramatic growth opportunity which will be very high risk and i now have become a clear mental model right so after discovery when i left to do the startup you know it was the same thing discovery ceo you make a fair amount of money like you know and you're like uh, kind of doing something the 20 year olds do right starting time to start a tech startup without any background of tech but by that time i was like look i'm going to grow a lot in doing a tech startup so i'm going to take the risk yeah Uh, when was the second break and when was the third break in which year 2008 was the first break 2012 was the second break 2016 was the third break so coincidentally it happened a little bit coincidentally but more also planned every 3 4 years of hitting 
stability in what I was doing and realizing that my growth was flattening out. That's when I would take a leap and like completely do something which was very like it, it was not a leap of relaxation. I would have very strong goals for that period of leap. Like in the yoga meditation year, for example, I was working very, very hard, right? I would wake up at like in an ashram in uh, South India in Sevananda Ashram, like they would wake you up at five o'clock in the morning and you had to kind of keep doing your kind of discipline till 10 in the night. And then you had to kind of rinse and repeat every day. You had to do the same thing for months on end, right? So it was not about working, like uh, chilling out. It was about taking a different goal that dramatically expands your mind in a different way. Right. So it was writing or like writing a novel or the second goal was like really uh, becoming a yoga teacher and knowing yoga very well. And the third time it was about uh, like uh, writing something very enduring, which would last in the world uh, uh, in and get published in the US. Right. And not just keep writing minor stuff in India. So the third time I really took a like full two year effort to become a great writer in, or like trying to become a great writer, whether I became or not, but trying to become a great writer uh, in, in New York. And so, so each time I really chose a goal when I took a sabbatical and, and, and really worked very hard towards it. Yeah. And, and second time when you took the sabbatical, you left the job in Boston consulting group. Second time when I took the sabbatical, I left the job in craft. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So the first time I left the job in Procter and Gamble, then I left the job in craft. Then I left the job in uh, the craft again, actually, because they took me back after the sabbatical. And then I kind of worked there for two, three years and then took off again to write. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. But, but all the time I left, I had to leave the job and leave, you know, like there's no. There was no security cushion. There was no backup plan. Yeah. But I'd accumulate, by the third time I had accumulated savings, but also obviously the costs have gone up with having two kids and stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I typically had a rule of thumb that. Uh, I had a good math, like in all of these, I had very good mathematical frameworks, right? So I had a mathematical framework that the it, salary divided by $20,000 is the amount of time it takes to find a job. So if you're making $200,000, it'll take you 10 months to find a job. If you're making $400,000, it'll take you like 20 months, right? Uh, like the lower the salary, the faster to find a job, right? So that's one framework. So I was like, okay, once I come back from a sabbatical, it'll take me this much amount of time to find a job, uh, which is six months or whatever. So if I take a 12 month sabbatical plus six months of a job and I put six months of extra emergency cover, if I have these many months of saving, then I'm good. So I would have this very strong mathematical frameworks and I would like do it, you know. And current, yeah. uh, 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 you said you pursued growth because you took each year yeah. of sabbatical as a growth opportunity. So, so if you can share, you know, uh, uh, what was the major change in you in the first sabbatical, in the second and in the third? Uh, yeah, very, very significant changes, right? So very, like in a way, measurable changes, if you will. The first sabbatical, I think, the when I traveled a lot, I like had this very strong sense of feeling that I would uh, like, uh, like that, that uh, you know, that the world is very boundaryless and my world will be very global. I think it helped a lot, right? So in Whitehead Junior, for example, I chose to go to the US very early into the journey into the company. Typically, people would like build a company, spend many years, then eventually go to the US, then go. Like I was so clear that uh, that anything we can create from India is going to be good enough for the world that I took that plunge very early, right? So very, very clearly correlated to those early years of like traveling and figuring out that the world is very more similar than dissimilar. I would say the second time, uh, which is to do yoga and meditation, it's been a gift, I think, uh, for all my life. I think uh, the productivity that I had as an individual has significantly shot up after 
like the spiritual practices, right? So I've been, I was just very much more productive, have been more like, so I'm a 40 year old entrepreneur who can just keep working all day, right? I don't like feel any sense of fatigue. And I think that's been an energy that's helped throughout. And then the full-time writer experience was very good because I failed very dramatically in that. Uh, so for two years, I wrote a novel that was rejected 60, 65 times, 61 times totally by every kind of agent, publisher. And I was very perseverant. I kept going after it. So I kind of, again, created a clear mental model that look, if I pick up something, I just have to keep at it every day, right? If I, as long as I just show up every day, I'll eventually make it a, a like, I'll eventually make it a success in some form. So I think when you start a company, um, maybe it's just like full of failures, as you would know, as an entrepreneur, right? There's just like mini failures and mega failures. Like there's just like a, so I was just very, in that period, I was very calm that all I have to do is to just keep coming up every day and like, you can take a blank page and turn it into a 300 page novel and eventually uh, publish it after uh, like, you know, ups and downs. And I'll take a company, which is uh, um, uh, an idea right now. And I'll like, I just have to show up every day and I'll turn it into an organization. So that's how, yeah. Uh, after your second uh, sabbatical, you grew leaps and bounds in your corporate career. Correct. What, what was the reason for that? Like what, how did your inputs in your corporate career change dramatically? Um, see, the thing is that, uh, yeah, so the, so the year that I spent was, uh, heavily, like I had spent about six months in an ashram, three months, uh, like I guess traveling from Europe to India, then three months. So I think the biggest thing that happened was, um, my life was very bare in that period, right? So very bare in the sense, uh, like when we traveled from Europe to India by road, we just chose the cheapest mode of transport, right? We didn't take any flights. So I was living in roads and hostels and stuff like that in ashram for six months, you are like like living in a dorm room with 60 people, there is one bathroom, there's like cold showers, if at all, right? So it's very austere. So I think the austerity has been very good after that, right? Because I think uh, with austerity, what happens is that there is this um, strong feeling that you have that you need very little to live, right? You you have this very kind of like, uh, it just gets established, right? So you, everybody knows that obviously in theory, but it just gets established that you need very little to live on, right? Uh, because if I could live for months on in an ashram with nothing really. I think that really liberated me. So I think when I came back to work, I was always just doing the right thing, right? I didn't care about my movement up in the world. Uh, I was just in the moment doing the right thing. And I think that has a huge effect, right? Uh, because uh, you just do what the right thing for that uh, particular thing is without caring about the, like I, I was in the moment doing the right thing for that point of time. And I had this clear sense that when it's no longer the right thing, I have full, freedom to leave and the ability to leave because um, I just don't need much at all. I think it's helped a lot uh, subsequently also like leaving discovery to form a startup. Uh, like uh, every time uh, I think that parameter, that framework has helped a lot that you need very little to live by. And uh, in, during the phase of writing, right? It's a tough job. People I yeah. think don't relate to writers very much, but it's a tough job getting a book out. Right. Publishing is way harder, but even writing a book day in, day out, yeah. right. what, what are the kind of self-doubts that you faced during that period? Uh, that uh, Was there any point of time? similar to now that I've lived in, I would say, three creation industries very deeply, right? I've lived in uh, the writing world very deeply, right? Uh, kind of started, published uh, a novel uh, multiple times. I've in TV channels, in Discovery, I launched a TV channel from scratch, right? And uh, like, uh, you know, I saw the whole TV and media industry. And then obviously a startup I've seen from, like built from basically nobody to kind of creating a company. Then 
I think they all form the very similar pattern, which is by its nature, creation is uh, very hard because nobody's asking for it, right? Nobody in the world needs it, right? Nobody's saying I want a new TV channel or I want a new book or I want a new company. So uh, by its nature, the barriers of really penetrating consciousness of people to uh, like, you know, to, to even uh, acknowledge, get acknowledged that there is a need for them for, for that particular thing is very high. So as a result, the success rates in all of these industries is very low, right? Uh, all of these industries I've seen is that they follow surprisingly a very similar pattern where 90% of will fail uh, out of the remaining 10%, 9% will be equal to doing a job, right? Uh, the, the payouts or the kind of the end outcomes will be very similar to doing a job and 1% will succeed, right? And 90% uh, you're entering these activities with the knowing that this is going to be a failure. So um, I think I just knew, right? Like that, look, 90% uh, this won't work, right? And that's fine, right? I think it's the, there are two things that were, that help helped me a lot. One was that, in this effort, I'm going to transform, right? And that's good enough. That itself is a great outcome. Like in the effort of creating a startup, in the effect, uh, effort of writing a novel, I'm going to transform as a person. And I think that's the biggest uh, goal uh, that I'm going to embark on is the transformation of myself. And then the second uh, part was that a bit like life is like a slot machine, right? You have to... Uh, come up and with your all you owe life is your gift of energy that you uh, that it's a slot machine on which you play the slots every day and sometimes it's going to hit a jackpot and sometimes it's going to be a bust and you don't know why and when or how because it's a bit unpredictable so i just knew that look all i owe my life every day is the gift of full energy and play the slots every day and that's what that's all i can do right i can never uh, think of the output because it it doesn't like so my first novel was written 3 months part time it was a bestseller the second, the third one was written two years full time and was rejected 60 times and failed even after it got a big deal with Random House. So uh, I just feel, I realized that the input and output have no correlation almost. So all I owe my life is my input. That's been very liberating, I think. So I think knowing that uh, I'm going to transform with the input and all I can really commit to the, is the input has really just allowed me to keep doing things, you know. Like, um, like, I, like even when I started the startup, I was like not, um, you know, expecting or planning that I would like sell it for a few hundred million dollars in uh, like 18 months or so. That was obviously never the plan and can never be the plan. Uh, but I knew that I, hey, I would transform in the process of creating a tech startup and be, um, you know, like you can't complain about the output. You can just think about the input. Yeah. And growth is never linear, right? Growth. <laughs> when, when, did, when did you start to realize that as a person that? Growth is never linear. Yes. Uh, I, I started to realize that when... I think there was a moment of time when I was like, uh, I accepted, right? I was 31 years old. I was sleeping on my sister's couch, right? Uh, and everybody around me was like buying houses and sending pictures of their first kid. And I, I don't know. I think there was a realization when I was on that couch that look um, like my destiny will be different, right? And it's fine. I have to accept it that look, I can't be envious of people with a output which I haven't, uh, which I haven't valued and I haven't worked for. So it was very easy at that point of time to feel like uh, the, like, you know, they were all my batchmates from like, uh, you know, from like uh, engineering college and I am, and they were all reaching uh, like milestones, right. That the world values. And I was like, uh, kind of nowhere close. And I think, I think I was just kind of at that point of time, quite uh, clear that look, I'll have to like measure life by my own milestones. Right. So I, I think that, that was very liberating because after 31 or at that age, I, 
I mean, I just stopped caring about who's reaching where. I would I would be very clear in saying that for the first five years after I am, I would really think about stuff like that on who's where and where am I and. I think after that, I've never really even thought who's where, right? Like, I just feel that you have to follow your own, you know, your own kind of inclination, your own dharma, if you will. Yeah. Uh, Karan, uh, I'm going to ask a very personal thing. And please yeah, yeah, say no. Yeah, yeah. No, no, please. Yeah. Uh, your mom passed away around seven to yeah. eight years ago. How did yeah. that change you, shattered you as a person or that experience altered you? So the thing is, ki, I won't say it shattered me as much as I was always very pulled to the Gita, the Upanishads, the Buddhism. I was I was very pulled to it from very early on, I would say. From IM days, I was very pulled to all that stuff, right? But I was always reading about it. It was very theoretical. So when with my mom, she had a cancer and she really withered away as a body, right? Like she really went through a lot of physical decline. And I was with her a lot that, that period, right? In my sabbatical or whatever, I was like... I saw the body decline and uh, like saw how how tough the end is, right? And I think that really put my somewhat meaning of life questions at the center. And as a result, I was very like immediately after that, almost I uh, kind of decided to do this yoga and meditation thing for a year. And really, I wasn't doing yoga and meditation to like, you know, improve my productivity. At that point of time, I was really comfortable with the idea that I might become a monk, right? Really get into the the severe practices of enlightenment and stuff because I was very like I was very deeply kind of interested in the in this in this side right but then you know I had different learnings from that period but and I came back to the world but uh, at that point of time I was very committed to like, um, like you know the cycle of birth and death the meaning of life really getting to the bottom of it intellectually uh, feel it spiritually so um, yeah so I think it impacted me to go forward in my thrust to go there yeah and, and if you can share, you know, insights from your meditation journey, you have been meditating for, I believe, seven, eight years. Yeah, since 2013. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so at any point of time, you became inconsistent or what kept you consistent during that journey? I would say reasonably consistent. Um, there was a period of time which was very deep during that period I was living in an ashram uh, that was quite deep and uh, long. But after that, since I've been back into the world, it's been a very consistent, like 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes in the night as a pattern. And I think that pattern has almost continued uh, throughout. Uh, helped a lot with other things because I, I valued that pattern so much that, for example, alcohol went out of my life because I knew that when I drunk, uh, like, uh, you know, when I was drinking, then uh, like the night meditation would not happen and the morning meditation would be very clouded. So a lot of things kind of like automatically happened because of that. Vegetarian, I became a vegetarian because uh, I realized, like I, I was more conscious of the... Uh, effect on of food on my body uh, so stuff like that right I became more conscious about what was happening in my body because of the meditation apart from obviously the the like the mind being like I'm you know like uh, yeah like being like being somewhat more tolerable to work with because like I was able to channelize my energy better and uh, on your blog uh, you know currentbajaj.com I believe you share a lot of insights about publishing a book about distribution what is the things about distribution and marketing you learned via first principles by doing your own experiments? The It's a good question. So I, I haven't written in five years. So just so like I haven't written a blog in five years. So I think it's, it dates, maybe the world has changed overall. But uh, I, I think that my, my biggest insight is one or two distribution mediums work. Once you figure out those one or two distribution mediums that work, you should go blitz scale on them and, and just let go, let go of everything else. So I think that like I, in, in my, in my writing days, I was, uh, 
like whenever I was like uh, selling the novel, it became very clear that look, uh, Amazon advertising is working, and second thing, this is working, right? Or two things would work, and I would just go and really spend my own money to scale them. Now it helped a lot in Whitehead Junior, for example. Uh, very early, we figured out that Facebook was working. We built an entire hundred crores a month business just on Facebook advertising and referrals, right? Uh, people were referring Whitehead Junior, and uh, Facebook advertising was working, and we did nothing else. right we just did that and just did that and just did that and did more of that and more of that and more of that and so i think with distribution what i've seen is that uh, every brand which is good will figure out one or two mediums that really hit a chord and then you should just scale them like crazy uh, versus uh, like diversifying too much you know and for your own books you mentioned on your blog let's say 5 years ago that that's what you mentioned the last blog that you did all your uh, <coughs> distribution and marketing on facebook yourself you didn't take Correct. Yeah. yeah 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 no 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 i mean i was a i had a conventional publisher obviously random house hapa collins in the first then penguin random house so i had uh, good publishers and they did the best they can but obviously publishers are not going to be you know despite their best efforts they are not going to be marketing experts yeah. and so yeah you have to take it in your hands completely and now coming on to the white hat junior journey right <clears throat> among all the ideas uh, that you wanted to start with what made you stick with white hat junior i think it was very very mission i liked the mission a lot when that first came up with the idea i think the whole idea was that uh, very very personal for me like i had my own kids they were very young 4 and 2 when white hat junior i started white hat junior the idea was i had formed a clear framework that uh, like my life changed after i started to build things i wrote a novel and then as i said my creative well dipped i added more to the creative well so i i always thought that the first act of creation the earlier you do it in your life the more your life will transform i wish i had done it in 18 i wish i had tried to write my first novel at 18 or so i and then i read some research around how kids peak in creativity at age 6 then what happens is more and more rules and systems enter their lives and uh, they keep getting more and more uh, system oriented if you will right and creativity keeps going down so it actually is very good research by george land bet jarman from nasa that kids actually if you take a random group of people kids would test at age 6 would test in the top 98th percentile of creativity right free forming associations etc and uh age 35 they test in the bottom 2% right so what happens is that more and more as rules and systems enter your life you become less and less creative and you become more and more of like you know fixated on the right and wrong the binary truths of life you know yes and no right and wrong uh so i wanted my kids to build and create early So when I read about early childhood coding, I was like, "Boom! Right, this is exactly what I should be doing." Uh, because coding early really just uh, makes kids builders, right? They can like put two and two together. They like they write this code, this thing, and they create an output, and they are transformed by the fact that they are like they think that look, everything in the world is an object that's created by someone, and I can make it too, right? And that's very powerful. So, uh, so yeah, so I think I really like that mission. it was about coding and then as we went along it became uh, bigger about the fact that we could transform every subject through this mechanism you know yeah so before starting white hat junior did you yourself learn coding or uh, teach yourself your kids coding my kids yeah yeah so i started to uh, kind of experiment with scratch uh, scratch junior started to like you know teach them and started to or like my four year old that started to like and, and started to realize what the limitations were of not having a one on one teacher right uh, like uh, or not having a small group teacher uh, like self learning apps versus uh, like you know uh, like uh, teacher assisted like I, i was able to form some mental models around that yeah. yeah 
because i have a one and a half year old uh, right now and the biggest yeah. interest uh, he has is, is in watching baby shark on youtube mm-hmm. those the youtube icon yeah. and he goes it and uh, <clears throat> being a kid uh, you know back in 90s so just sharing a personal anecdote uh, my yeah. father's business suffered a like a huge crash when i was 10 11 years old so at that point of time just to help my father i started selling cricket cards cricket and wwf cards uh, were really uh, popular back then so i sold like 1000 cards worth rupees 500 600 so that took away fear of selling from me very early in the childhood wonderful hmm. wonderful uh, and very few of us have that opportunity very early you know to kind of build something like even like you know build a trading uh, platform right as you did and it's very transformative when that happens that was my exactly my thesis what you what you discovered yourself that uh, you'll build something and it'll just transform you because you'll always uh, put yourself as a creator right you'll always think of yourself as a creator and i felt like i discovered that too late in my own life yeah so that's why so i think the mission appealed to me um i knew the model and how it would be like different than anything else because of the one on one teaching creativity oriented class where kids would build something so i had a, i had a very clear sense right at the onset what it would be and and we actually executed against that plan we didn't deviate too much from it when when did you raise your first investment um i was a bit fortunate that uh, because of my background there was interest at an idea level itself so um i was with discovery in august when i decide when i first came up with this idea actually uh and i uh, gave discovery my resignation uh, in august and there was a six month period uh, notice period and i uh, just had a powerpoint presentation and uh, and i raised funding based on that in october and october november so while i was still with my notice period at discovery i had got commitment of funding from nexus and omidyar but i was formally able to start on march 2019 and and uh, uh how, how did you get to connected to these vcs both nexus and omidyar to be honest i think um i would have been one degree of separation away because my batchmates were founders and 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 stuff but i reached out to them by a cold call on linkedin so i just sent a message saying that look hey i'm karan bajaj i'm the ceo of discovery um you know like i've like you know i've like had a track record of like just seeing things through whatever i do them whether that's writing a novel or like being a ceo and um, you know so i'm i'm now going to do a startup and i'm going to see it through so if, like it was a pos- positive message saying that look i mean i'm doing it and you know so so i think uh, people responded positively to that message yeah and uh, 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 why are these only two vcs like how did you identify that these two other right uh, i reached out to five i reached out to the five top guys sequoia nexus omid uh, no so sequoia nexus uh, matrix yeah uh light speed maybe maybe the top 5 vcs right out of which uh uh sequoia rejected matrix and nexus were very interested and uh i think light speed rejected so out of the 5 three rejected two were very interested and that's it like that's how it happened yeah and then uh, as soon as we got nexus on and uh, i got nexus on then uh, we looked for uh, like a second complementary player who would help us with the industry if you will the education yeah. and and omidyar was great uh, we reached out to omidyar and bloom if i remember correctly uh, like as uh, like to help us with education if you will right and that's where omidyar was very interested so i closed it very quickly i would say fortunate i don't have a very big struggle story around it yeah. yeah and and this was before like you were out of your job this was all in that yeah 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 this is out of the job it was not planned that way i had given my notice period to discovery 
and I had a long notice period and I was like really going deeper into the idea. I had a good business plan. So I, I kind of reached out into the market and got interest immediately. Can you share but, your But first? I had not built anything. So I built, I, I almost uh, kind of built in parallel after that. And really the company started in March, 2019. Can you share your first 12 months of execution and, and the metrics on, on the business? What you track? Yeah, so I had very strong metrics, uh, which we were tracking right from the beginning. Uh, we, I had defined that product market fit would be when uh, net promoter score hits 50. We rigorously measured net promoter score from the first day of the company. Uh, when net promoter score would hit 50, renewals would hit 50 percentage because I knew I would be able to, uh, based on the business model, a renewal of 50% would make my business model work. And uh, my trial conversion, which is uh, from free trial to paid, there would be a conversion of a very, uh, like I called it a 50-50-50 rule. 50% net promoter score, 50% renewal, and at least a 50% chance that I'm getting a predictable trial conversion of 10 to 12%, right? So uh, that's how. So the till then, I kept a team very small. So six people in my house, right? Uh, and we built everything from there. The moment I hit that, I turned into a different animal altogether. I just blitz scale like nobody's business, right? I just scale like crazy. So to give you a sense, uh, I did one crore of revenue in about uh, one crore per month of revenue in about the first nine months with less than 20 people. One crore per month revenue I hit. And after that, I did 100 crores of, uh, per month of revenue in six months. So every month I doubled after that. One crore, two crore, four crore, eight, 16, 32, 64. I, I went up to 127 crores a month roughly in about six months time from there. Uh, six to seven months time. So, and then the acquisition happened in about 18 months time. So, so it was a very austere, disciplined approach pre-product market fit and a completely, I would say, uh, completely uninhibited approach after scaling. And I made a lot of mistakes also, which are very public now, by the way. So like, you know, my junior is heavily criticized and stuff. And they're not, you know, as I said, like these were public mistakes, right? I mean, we just blitz scaled after that uh, because I, like, you know, the, the context was that they were, I was the last to arrive in the tech market in 2019. People had been around for 10 years, you know, uh, and I picked up a niche, um, made it a category. Anybody with no very little capital, I had like uh, raised $1 million to start with and then 10 million and everybody was very well capitalized, hundreds of millions of dollars of capital. The moment I realized that I'd created a category and it was uh, like, then before I raised the next round of funding, I just like, even in the talks of raising the next round of funding, I just like scaled it so fast that uh, like basically nobody could enter that category at all. So by the time kids coding became a category, we became like there was nobody who could like by the time they even figured out that there's this category being created, it become a huge category, uh, you know. So I so that's how I planned. And if you can uh, share, what were the top five mistakes that you made during uh, blitz scaling? Uh, first big mistake is. Um, um, uh, like I would say five, okay, let me go count one by one, right? So there's a fair amount of mistakes. So if I were to prioritize the mistakes, I would say, uh, number one is that the founder's strength becomes a weakness of the company. Uh, that's my key learning. So I came from a brand management marketing background. So I assumed I would be able to do it easily. So I never hired uh, marketing leaders at all. I hired all the things that I was not strong at. So my text team, my product team, curriculum team, ops teams, they were like excellent, right? I just thought that I would do marketing on my own. The problem, the reality is that the founder's strength will become the biggest weakness of the company because the founder has no time, right? The founder can't be a vertical owner at all. The founder has to be somebody who owns the whole company, right? Especially, so I think that was one, right? I really, the founder's strength becoming the weakness of the company. I think marketing 
legal compliance i think those things became the weakness of the company i think overall right i think that's just one second i think is that the founder's role i think now i have a very clear sense right the 0 to 1 the founder's role is the product they should you should not hire a product manager in 0 to 1 you are the the founder is the owner of the product right 1 to 100 the founder's role is business system scaling right your whole system should be instrumented and architected so that this scale 100 to 1000 your journey changes to becoming a culture person right who's really just championing values cultures and and does very or the business is so instrumented that you're just doing reviews and stuff right uh, i think i i made the 0 to 1 transition quite uh, well um, i i was very focused on the product the product did very well with the users uh, the 1 to 100 i think i did quite well with systems and stuff the 100 to 1000 i think i was too late maybe it was also the nature of the time i the 0 to 1 was 9 months 1 to 1 like for us everything was very compressed in a like a rapidly short period of time but i think i should have made the 100 to 1000 transition of being a champion of values and culture much early right uh, which i'm just doing now like after you know so i think that would be the second broader mistake right i think the other mistakes are nested within them right uh, if if i were to uh, will right but the founder has to immediately change the hat when he's blitz scaling and then when he, when the blitz scale is successfully happen if you continue to on down that path also is not correct actually you have to immediately change the so so just to before we in march of 2020 we were 300 people right uh, in august 2020 we were 6000 people right so in 6 months i went from 300 to 6000 people without a very clear framework around values and stuff so obviously there were mistakes made all over the board but you know you live and you learn you know so nothing so what like, is the current metrics uh, in terms of monthly revenue at white hat junior uh, yeah so i think uh, consistently about uh, like 100 crores a month uh, so that would be the like the i would say the steady state and as we open up to new markets and new courses that would keep going yeah so i think our stable state is about 100 crores a month until new initiatives keep coming and like you know uh, like taking it up forward up yeah and the team would be roughly at around 6000 people at- about 5000 people yeah correct yeah right and once you started like you mentioned about criticism once you started facing criticism right as a founder how did you react at that moment did you say you know criticism happen in business let me focus on the business and scale it or were you mindful of that criticism and said let me change uh, very mindful i think very mindful on um like like we were like like obviously you know it was uh, like uh, the bejus acquisition huge limelight on the company the company wasn't ready for that kind of limelight because it was really like a it was too like it was 18 months old a huge like amount of limelight and like you know a lot of like uh, holes in the in the systems and processes right i think it just kind of came in droves and i i was like just correcting one by one one by one like looking at everything and thinking okay fix this system fix that system fix that system so i think uh, you know like i think the the thing was you know i i would say criticism uh, was looked at to figure out how to make systems better and second i think at during all of this time i just kept saying look let's keep making the curriculum and the teacher quality better and better and better daily that's the product that we have right uh, let's like so i had always had a separate team working on learning experience and teacher quality and let's keep making that better and better so i said okay let's even as we are fixing holes and plugging i don't want the whole company to become about plugging holes we should keep getting better at the same time so i kind of kept the uh, like the like i restructured very quickly right and restructured the company to focus on learning experience and delivery uh, with uh, as much intent as growth and um, uh, systems like so i was able to restructure the company to deliver on both the objectives of uh, growth with solid systems and improving the product daily 
what what are the side effects of you leading the marketing function for the company the side effect is that it got no attention at all like because obviously i had no time at all right uh, like in the end the founder uh, in a blitz scaling phase will always be extinguishing fires right that's going to be the nature of the blitz scaling phase and uh the founder has to let some fires burn obviously always has to let some fires burn because if you start extinguishing every fire then that again is not the best use uh and uh, you know these functions uh, that you think you'll just do because they're so easy they ne- they get completely neglected so you know every intern could just post on social media whatever they wanted like it was a free for all right marketing like there was a bunch of 20 30 interns doing whatever they wanted because there was no oversight on them at all uh, right so i think uh, yeah i mean we kind of that was the consequence of that period and is, is during so that I, retrospect i think the founder's strength will become the weakness of the company because the founder thinks that it's very easy and it becomes so easy that you never attack it right because you think that it's like a like you think it's a solved problem because it's solved in your mind yeah and uh, how was the acquisition experience like like were you open to to that experience or were you saying that i'm already a 100 cr company why should i yeah. get it Uh, no i think i was very open i think there were multiple things right one is basically i was at a stage of life where it was more about the mission than the like so i felt like look uh, soon uh, because i was really blitz scaling then going like and the plans were more courses more countries uh, i was i thought that 50% of my job would become fundraising right uh, and if i were to think of my mission in the world is that the mission to kind of build my own company or was the mission the kids becoming creative or like kids never losing their spark of creativity and if that's the mission then you know they uh, bejus is the like uh, you know they they have the biggest reach and the biggest uh, like you know they've they built the biggest tech company so i think i'll just be able to focus on what i do very well and uh, and so it was very clear in my mind that anything i wanted to do on my own we would be able to do faster better stronger under the broader network and i was at a phase of my life where i didn't care whose name was on the company or like it doesn't matter right at all at that like i was i mean not to say arrogantly but i was reasonably accomplished in my other fields of life that i wasn't looking for this as my like only source of accomplishment so that's why i was never hung up on that and then second i think in startups it's very important that people understand the economics of a startup very well right i was at the perfect phase where uh it's very hard for the acquirer the acquired and the investors to be happy right because if you raise too much money valuations become out of control acquirer who's looking at a company with such exaggerated valuations uh will always pause right uh, uh on the other hand if you sell for less than investors who've invested in high valuation will be kind of like uh, penalized right so i had reached a, a bit of a perfect stage where i'd raised only 10 million dollars right uh the last round company was valued at only 9 months ago was valued at 30 million dollars uh 300 million dollars straight cash deal would get all of the investors a uh, at least a 10x exit in minimum in less than a year right uh, which is kind of a dream from a venture capital exit perspective as a founder i diluted very little uh, my team i was very generous with the esops in the team they had like you know so the team held esops that hadn't diluted much so i knew it was kind of transformative wealth for most people uh, and then from a acquirer perspective uh, to be very uh, fair to bejus they had basically this was a company that had barely been around right like uh, february 2000 march 2019 the founder actually left their job and they were acquiring it in august 2020 so 15 months in they were acquiring a company uh you could uh, like put a valuation around 100 crore a month but you also have to say that look they haven't lived through cycles of ups and downs 
maybe the 100 crore a month is exaggerated because of the pandemic maybe it's not the cycle of the business so i gave a heavy discount for the fact that i hadn't lived through cycles in the business at all right uh, any other company with 100 crore a month would be in india charging like you know would be like asking for billion uh, like uh, you know like probably at least uh, a 1200 crrr yeah, yeah correct a 1200 crrr but i gave a huge discount on the fact that uh, look uh, the company is not lived through ups and down cycles right it's just been in the business for barely 15 months so i i think in a way that holy kind of uh, equivalent of the found the founding team the uh, you know everybody kind of like uh, you know uh, reaching like having a satisfying outcome is very hard in a startup i think people don't realize that right i think people are too focused on the valuation of the next round uh, but it's a very uh, tricky thing right to be a billion dollar company uh, the investors look for a 2 to 3 billion dollar exit right to be a 3 billion dollar company you have to kind of scale up to that level in a very short period of time a lot of choices get made that are not truly in line with what the founder really set out to do you know so i was quite clear on that yeah so it was actually a somewhat easy decision yeah and how did life change after acquisition life change after acquisition i i, I said the relentless scrutiny on every moment was very new <laughs> you know like i Uh, like the scrutiny i got would have been the scrutiny that discovery would have gotten after 20 years of being in business and setting up every system well right i knew how to run discovery but i was suddenly getting the scrutiny of a discovery while being you know still in too many patchy yeah. things right i think uh, but other than that i would say like you know i've learned to kind of we, we obviously to live with that quite quickly but other than that i would say uh, no it's been very pleasant i think uh, to give beju a lot of credit he has a very boundaryless vision of the world very similar to mine but to give him even more credit i think i developed that through travels and living outside india for almost uh, half of my professional career he's developed it sitting in india uh, you know uh, despite coming from a small village he's developed a very clear view that like you know that an indian education company can and will go global right and i think because of that kind of alignment i think uh, uh, we are able to do our things right he believes in the model a lot he believes in the boundarylessness of the world a lot so i think that's that's great yeah and when uh, parents criticize a white hat junior not all like but some fraction of them do you think the the the, the value or the mission uh, you you set out to is getting accomplished or has the business taken over that value or the mission i actually think um very very few white hat junior parents have uh, like and and i would be very open and like uh, would be very open to their criticism but i would actually say the net promoter scores of white hat junior are really unthinkable right i mean i'm in my second year uh, like full and scaled and right uh, we've gone from 50 to 70 typically with scale in a services model you actually decline and we've been so religiously following this nps metric that there was only kind of one month in the middle where it fallen to 41 after all the like the negative backlashes and everything and people weren't proud to be associated with the company right uh, i would say i've never see, like i like we we track it rigor, rigorously i think we've through all of the distraction we've just kept focus on delivering a very very good customer experience the creativity of the curriculum the the teachers empathy and compassion right i think we've kind of kept very faithful to that overall through all of this period right so i think in that way um, I, I haven't had to worry about that contingent much because they we've really delivered on that on every promise we've made on that front. And I track that as a KPI almost uh, NPS monthly, class ratings hourly, right? Uh, live dashboard that I look at every day, right? That that commitment of a great class, uh, like a great project after class, should never go down. It should keep getting better. So yeah, I think one thing which is not highlighted much is. Uh, uh, 
that you have all teachers which are female right yeah. and yeah. this has become like and maybe some of them have gone dropped out of work they have come back again Correct. into work right how many of these would be number today we, we 11000 uh, north of 11000 yeah Wow. So 11, like amazing yeah yeah incredible uh, you know like hugely qualified educated women who didn't have a voice in the workforce because they obviously women in india have to choose the or right either go out of home and travel long distances and like the safety in big cities versus uh, we we gave a bit of an and right they were very qualified and they had the ability to do express their qualification at home Uh, to kids all over the world right and that's why the decision to go global very early was used tremendously useful because they wanted to do the night shift right because they wanted to it was not even a shift right they chose to open hours in the night to allow kids from all over the world to take classes because it it meant it was the right thing for them right they had families in the morning and then they were able to and there's just so many stories of how they've become independent and uh, like you know because of uh, because of that so i think yeah no that's been very powerful yeah what you know uh, please free uh, feel free to answer or not one criticism you know and uh, uh, which was very public was that uh, you know there was one one crore jobs which were being advertised that kid who had uh, gone through white hat junior coding programs got one cr jobs naming wolf gupta and then you had to take back that campaign like how did this pan out like uh, see i think see i would say let me put it like i think um... you have to remember the context right we are talking about like 1200 creatives on facebook out of which 6 uh, or 8 creatives out of 1200 or maybe like you know creatives uh, you know which uh, are social media creatives that somebody thinks is it's it's not that there's a claim that this kid has made one crore out of white junior at all i think there's somebody there's a intern who has a who has a apparently in his mind a very fun idea that there should be a wolf of wall street there should be a like you know there should be a wolf uh, of wall street kind of a kid who does great with coding okay i mean bad sense of humor okay fair completely but to treat it like uh, that this is a claim that has been made in marketing for why like it's too uh, like everything was so overblown and exaggerated right the reality is that yes definitely creative like that we should have had a rigorous compliance and legal mechanism for uh, creatives like that to not go on uh, on on facebook social media or whatever and and i think that's the failure right not having the uh, like a strong enough legal compliance mechanism but out of like 1000 creatives like we are talking about eight creatives i mean that's like a small proportion of what the companies talked about that too in context of a humorous campaign uh, it was so overblown that look this that i mean i was like okay like got it mistake made identified fixed i mean but uh, it doesn't represent uh, like you know 92% of like uh, creatives yeah. and it doesn't represent uh, the fact that 70% of revenue comes from referrals and people telling other people and the fact that like a 100 crore a month business in india has been created with no capital or like at, at the time of acquisition i had 14 million dollars cash in the bank when i'd picked up 11 million dollars because word of mouth was spreading and referrals because the product was good but like you know again in the noise it just feels like okay they've kind of put some like a whole deceptive advertising which has led to like the, but it was really so overblown like a few piece of creative but having said that they weren't correct you know like there is no like denying that but i'm just saying that uh, like proportionality has to be kept in mind on the overblown nature of criticism versus the actuality having said that you know we fixed that lot of that and i think uh, like i've cleaned up to a level that you know like we don't have any like uh, any like we have a six sigma process right as much in the ops side as there is on the creative side 
Yeah. And as a country also, uh, you know, uh, we, when we criticize, we create, criticize in masses, be it cricket or anything <laughs> else. Right. When we praise yeah, also, yeah. we... we right, truly, yeah. No, and I think it's fair also. So I think like kind of brand, so that's what I'm saying. They see brands of our size and in the industry we are in should be very responsible. I think that's a well, truly a true size. Vita Junior in the education industry should be very responsible. And, and, you know, we were not like at 15 months old company was not uh, as like, it was a, it was a big brand with a very, I would say, work in progress backend, <laughs> you know, in every form, like work in progress uh, systems and uh, processes. So I think now it's a brand with the systems and processes that are also as robust as they should be. So I think, yeah, I mean, they're not, they were, people were not wrong in what they were saying, but, but the proportionality uh, was way out of Understand from the point of view, you know, if you think from even Mark Zuckerberg or uh, what people in Silicon Valley advocate, move fast and break things, right? Yeah. You move fast, you know, things broke. Always, yeah. See, there are fires running all over, as I said. You, when you're blitzscaling, and I hope many entrepreneurs reach that state when they are going from one to hundred crores, it's a very fun journey. There are fires everywhere that you can see, right? Your job is to figure out the fire Most that can become fire. a forest fire. Yeah, yeah, the forest, the, the the small fire that can eventually become a forest fire, and you do your best to prioritize what that forest fire is, right? You can't uh, like extinguish all fires. That's the reality. And maybe I chose the wrong, uh, like you know, maybe I chose one wrong fire that I should have extinguished early, but. It'll happen. I mean, I'm just telling you that anybody who's lived through it and most critics haven't, it'll happen. I just, am, I, I'm, I, you know, like something or the other will uh, go wrong. You know, I think it's just the nature of this game. And, uh, you know, now, yeah, like you just have to fix it quickly. Yeah. And startups are not uh, focused and they shouldn't be focused on, you know, but that's also a wrong issue, but they shouldn't be focused on improving the brand image. Their job is to get the best product out. And once the product is out, Get in the hands of as many people as possible. One two hundred, hundred one two hundred, correct. Hundred two thousand, as I said, you have to suddenly take a completely different view about brand and culture, uh, right? And I think that's what happens, right? I think the z- the zero to one founder is the product founder. The one two hundred is the scaler. The hundred two thousand is actually a very different and a mature lens. It's a compliance culture brand. I think for me, the hundred should have happened at about say probably ten crores a month or twenty crores a month. I started to focus on that at very large scale. Uh, right. Uh, like, uh, like, so I, we just like blitz scaled very, very fast, I think. So I think, uh, yeah, but you know, lessons learned, as I said, that's why right at the beginning, you were talking about second founders, second time founders. I think that's why they have the benefit of, you know, all of this. Yeah. The first time founder, despite the fact that I ran discovery and stuff, it will never have the benefit of knowing all of this stuff, you know? Yeah. And things don't happen to hit you so fast and so hard, right. When you are just leading in discovery. <laughs> Correct. Exactly. Yeah. And also things are matured, no? The systems and processes have matured to a science. And also, like by the time I came to Discovery CEO, I didn't have to set up the quality process of getting TV serials on air. That process was set up, right? I, I had to execute and scale that process that was set up. In, in this case, you are setting up and scaling and executing at the same time, all of that. Yeah. Uh, and also, so one, the one, one last thing, you know, around the criticism aspect, right? Uh, you first, uh, you know, the White Hat Junior first uh, did a case on Pradeep Punia for 20 CR and then took back that case. If you can share, uh, if that think, you know, I mean, like I, I'd rather not share on too many stuff on the judiciary side. I think, uh, like you know, I, I think that's the one area I would just say is because it's a like a judicial thing. I won't want to 
like say something that gets misinterpreted overall but in general as i would say like you know overall if i were to look at the learnings of the whole like uh, experiences and stuff i think you know like uh, mistakes were made mistakes were corrected and you know and like i think yeah like we are um, like i'm i'm really positive about the next phase of the company yeah so i feel fortunate that i lived through all of this because yeah. it's really a transformative experience as an individual in its own way you know yeah in in fact uh, you know even if you have seen the movie social network Uh, right yeah 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 that scale of scaling yeah yeah correct exactly uh, yeah mark zuckerberg was criticized so much right because uh, that like that became legendary right uh, yeah when you, when you are scaling so so fast there a numerous amount of things can go wrong and founder being a human right he can be right on so many things only so so that Uh, you know, I think Silicon Valley is more forgiving. <laughs> uh, oh, maybe is it? Okay, yeah, could be. Yeah, yeah. Karan, if you have to write, you know, your uh, next book about the journey of White Hat Junior, you know, and uh, what, and you have to divide the first ten chapters. What would be the headings of these ten chapters that you would want to aspire to imbibe in every entrepreneur? Oh, you mean uh, so the whole journey into ten chapters? And yes, yes, and each so chapter. So I just said I think the three the three phases are zero to one obsessive product focus, right? And uh, not scaling in that period at all. Not like just being what I call uh, what what is the famous term is the ramen profitability, right? Which is uh, like uh, living on ramen or noodles, right? Which basically means really uh, very bare bones structure. Uh, like very low salaries to people very low office space right really really uh, till you figure out that you've reached the one phase uh, and i think the the, the one to 100 phase should be very unapologetic again like in the one to 100 phase you have to be relentless at scaling uh, and and in that like you know ops business systems hiring like uh, like just go crazy right at that at that phase and uh, and then like and and at that phase you you know you should be like fundraising aggressively because that's your moment in the sun right if you figure out the 0 to 1 model then the 1 to 100 model i've seen so many people blink during that time right i i mean before me there were live learning models right and i didn't see them hit that scale because i don't know what they were, like you know why they weren't if they'd figure out that journey they should have just scaled and then the 100 to 1000 phase as i said you just have to wear a different hat of brand culture compliance legal and really make that transition so Yeah, so I think within these journeys, I think there have been uh, learnings. I think my one other big learning that I've seen, if I were to really look at where I've seen other founders go a bit wrong, I in or, or what I see in front of me, because I was I was the as I said the last to come to edtech, right? There was very established players already. I've seen that a the one two hundred phase was not executed well. The blitz scaling was not done well. Second, I think there was too much focus on building products uh, without knowing what you are, what your real core competences. So, for example, building your own video platform for a live learning company is just like, in my opinion, it's the worst thing you can do because there's a solve problem with Zoom, and so many people have solved the live learning video problem, right? Your problem, your problem to solve is content and delivery with the teacher, right? For example, so I didn't build any products at all that I didn't think was my core competence. So we used coding platform Code.org, we used a video platform, off the gate appear, Jitsi, Zoom, we used. Uh, like you know we just use platforms that exist and we really believe that our job is to create content on them 
right? As a, they are they are providing the blank canvas. We'll create the content on them, and then we'll make our teachers better and better daily, right? And and I think that's what I see is that there's a lot of like building uh, products that are not needed for us. A small startup should be very focused on what is your core competence and only build that, and try to outsource everything else, right? Or outsource or uh, you know use off the shelf products for everything else. Um, yeah, I think that's uh, that's a thing. And in the one to hundred phase, again, my biggest learning is the rhythm of metrics. Really having the metrics, like for example, I think even now it's been uh, three years into the, or maybe two and a half years into the company. Now there is a practice that we had at ten o'clock in the morning. We would look at all the metrics, ten to eleven o'clock for the day that went past, and I still do that daily without a break. Right? We look at how many people signed up for the trial, from which medium. What was the classes completed? What was the conversion? So we have like 20 metrics that we track daily for each market. And I still maintain that rhythm of tracking that monthly for uh, like a daily. Uh, and I think that's the, whatever gets me measured gets managed, right? So uh, the, like the management was very strong because the measurement was very strong. And then I think, as I said, the 100 2000 journey is really investing in the, the founder becoming a culture champion and really uh, like wearing that side of you and uh, taking dedicated time for that which is very hard to do when you're always busy in execution. If I have to just point out at one thing, what would you say that yeah. one thing changed in Karan after this experience of building, creating Whitehead Junior? Um, very good question. Very, very good question. I think one thing, I don't know if anything has changed, but I would say one thing which has solidified is this view that, uh, you just need to show up every day with uh, full energy and play the slots, right? So, like, uh, which means that uh, that that's like I feel like you just have to show up every day. That's it. Like I've I've lived through thick and thin here, right? Uh, through like in a in a two year period, I've lived through kind of starting, booming, busting, boom, bust. Like I've lived through everything, right? The the panic when the first lockdown happened and realizing that I was in the middle of a fundraising process and everybody had like all the fundraiser had like, you know, everybody had kind of retreated that time, yeah. right? Nobody, in the first pan, in the first lockdown, every, all the venture capitalists had kind of uh, like decided not to invest at that or till the, like till the certainty entered the world. And I was right in the middle of my blitz scaling phase then and looking to raise capital. Uh, so like, you know, I've lived through that period and then all of this, like the whole wave of kind of criticism that came after the Beju's acquisition. But I think what I've consistently done is I've just showed up every day and said, look, Every day I'm gonna make the product better and my business metrics better. And and I think it always comes at the end of it, you always see the light. So it's just kind of solidified my view that you just have to show up every day, you know. <laughs> and, and eventually all barriers break. Thank you so much, Karan. It's been a wonderful experience to know your my pleasure. Your mind and your life journey on this podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for your time. Yeah.